Welcome to Beyond the Game, Wealth Mastery for Athletes. I'm your host, Chris Benson, joined by nine-year NFL vet, Alec Ogletree. Beyond the Game is a podcast where we will provide a playbook for financial growth, both on and off the field. Join us each week as we have an in-depth conversation with other professional athletes who've mastered the art of wealth creation. They're going to share their triumphs, setbacks, and maybe some lessons learned so you don't make the same mistakes. Join us. We think you're going to enjoy it. Jacob Turner, appreciate you taking the time to joining us on Beyond the Game Wealth Mastery for Athletes. Thanks for coming today. Chris, I appreciate you having me on. Looking forward to the conversation. All right. So here's where I want to start. There's a statistic out there that I'm sure you're aware of, and it was from Sports Illustrated. The article's old. I think it was from 2009. But essentially, I think the the quote was 78% of NFL players became broke within three years of exiting the league, right? And so I, as a non-professional athlete, we're very judgy. We, we always are like, oh, if I had $10 million, I had $100 million, I'd never do that. What are the things that you've seen either in your career as a professional baseball player or in your career as a financial advisor, the habits that those guys did that made them lose the money that potentially some of the normal people in the world are still doing today? For me, there's really two things to think about. One, I've seen all those stats. I think they're almost a little bit flawed just because the reality is when we think of professional athletes as normal people, which is definitely how I consider myself, you think about these people that are on the front of ESPN, right? You think about Patrick Mahomes making 30 or $40 million a year. The reality is most professional athletes aren't earning 30 to $40 million a year. They might be making league minimum, which is not an insignificant amount of money, but 700000 bucks a year for maybe two or three years is a vastly different ball game than millions of dollars. Sure. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing is, I think it goes back to compounding. We always talk about compounding when we think about investing and money continuing to grow, but compounding works the other way when it comes to spending. One thing I see happen a lot with athletes is they get money and they immediately adjust to this new lifestyle of, you know, I got the fancy car, I bought the nice house, I'm going to the nice dinner. And on top of that, I want all the people that helped me get here to come do the same thing. So they don't slowly build their lifestyle. They go from zero to 100 with their lifestyle. And it's very hard to pull back that lifestyle. And that compounding of spending really starts to kick in, right? You buy a new house. It's not just the down payment on the house. It's the mortgage. It's the property taxes. It's the electrical bill. It's all the stuff that comes with maintaining that home. You buy a new car, that's a depreciating asset. And in two or three years, you're going to be in the locker room and somebody else is going to have the next new car. And you're going to say, I want that. So the compounding really works both ways. And I think it's so important for guys when they first get drafted or when they first get that big check to make sure that they start slow and really establish those good habits of saving more than your your <clears throat> spending and making sure that you have this good foundation in place. Yeah, I mean, Jacob, everything that you just said is applicable to every career-based human being on the planet, right? I mean, you, I think what you're describing is kind of lifestyle creep, right? You make more money, you spend more money, right? You, you get a nicer car, you get a nicer house, and that continues to ratchet up. The good news in most people's careers is it may make them married to their job the rest of their lives, but but they probably have that income-producing potential. Where in the professional athlete space, if you're lucky, right? Like Alec, who's not here today for people just listening, Alec is at the Super Bowl on Radio Row and ditched me. Um, so it's just me. But, you know, what Alec was lucky to play nine years in the NFL, had a fantastic career, made made real money. Like you said, most guys are thousandaires. 
you know, most guys in the locker room are thousandaires, not, not Patrick Mahomes. And I think, you know, what's, what's interesting on our side is there's this judgment of, well, you'd lose your money, but most Americans spend more money than they make too. It's just at a whole nother level um, that I think we, we as sort of normal human beings have this judgment against, which, you know, I, I think when you think about what you just said is basically spend more or spend less than you make and be careful, like be thinking about what you can do day one. And the hard part, Jacob, and you know this more than anybody, you're 20, 22, right? Like I still make bad decisions. I'm 43. I mean, at 22, I made far less good decisions. Yeah. The other thing that I would say that really adds to it, that multiplies the potential bad outcomes for athletes oftentimes is you're in a locker room full of guys that are making five to 10 to 15 times what you're making. You know, Mm -hmm. if you think about most people when they're young, you know, they're really starting to climb up the corporate ladder, but they're not even in the meetings with the C-suite and they're not day-to-day interacting with the CEO that might be making 10 times what they're making. As an athlete, you're sitting right across the locker room from the guy that's making 20 million bucks if you're making league minimum. And mm-hmm. you're seeing the car that he's driving and you're maybe going to dinner with them from time to time. So you're seeing this lifestyle all the time. And it almost feels like it's like this rite of passage. Well, everybody else is doing it. So maybe I should too. Yeah, that's, it's a hard, like you said, I don't, I don't pull into the, my office parking lot and see, you know, Lambos and Ferraris on both sides of me. I mean, that keeping up with the Joneses in the professional athlete world, the Joneses are a whole nother level. Well, it's, it's an interesting thought process that I think at Beyond the Game, we're trying to to help people understand. And I, I think specifically with you, take me back to like that transitionary period for you. So look, you had you had a an incredible career in the in uh, Major League Baseball. I mean, you, you played in Major League's nine years and then a little bit overseas. Yep. So, uh, you know, you you were lucky relative to a, to a lot of guys. You came out a uh, highly touted uh, prospect out of St. Louis where in your mindset did you think in the beginning? Like when you were 21, 22, were you thinking, hey, I'm going to be the next 10-year guy in Major League Baseball? Or did you already have that head on your shoulders where you're thinking, all right, look, I have an opportunity to make life-changing money for a period of time. I'm going to do what I can do to to, um, compound those effects moving forward. Yeah, look, I think every professional athlete, the part of the reason why they got to where they're at is because they have a almost a delusional self-confidence in their own abilities. So when you got, when I first got to the big leagues, I was like, you know, I'm going to be here for the next 10 years. I'm going to be, you know, a potential 20 game winner. And, you know, at the time, Justin Verlander was the guy with Detroit. It was like, Hey, if I could try to follow in his footsteps, that's what I want to do. Now, the reality of my career was certainly not like that. It wasn't this straight line trajectory up. And the reality was there was a lot more failures than there were successes. But I think that's also the hard part when it comes to the financial side. If you're if you're projecting out this self-belief and you have this internal self-confidence that like I can do this thing, sometimes you're like, well, I could spend the money that I made because I'm going to make more down the road. But the reality of, of professional sports is like there's not a more cutthroat job out there. You know, if I come in on Monday and I don't do my job on Tuesday, they could say, like, you know what, Jacob, you're out, you didn't do the job on Monday. There's no performance improvement plan. In addition to that, if I do my job on Monday and I roll in on Tuesday and they say, you know what, I found somebody that was cheaper they're going to get rid of me. There's no feelings in professional sports, right? This is a business. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Is it, if you could go back and change it, would you have still done it? 
Oh, 100%. I tell people this all the time. Look, like there's there's the behind the scenes of professional sports that people don't get to see. And I try to share a lot of that stuff online. But the ultimate reality is like being a professional athlete, in my opinion, is the greatest job in the world. I saw somebody post like they would rather own a small business than be a professional athlete. And I'm like, well, you, you're saying that because you've never been a professional athlete before. And look, <laughs> like, there's more stress that comes with it. There's more spotlight on you. But like there is nothing that I've found that gives you the same rush as walking out there in front of 50,000 people. Like, I, you know, if somebody else knows what that looks like, let me know. But you're essentially at this elite of elite stage and the world's eyes are on you. And it's awesome because it's what you, you know, for me, it was what I dreamed of as a kid, right? So to see your dreams come true, I mean, I can't think of anything better, but look, the reality is there's a whole nother business side of it that when you're dreaming that as a kid, you have no idea what that looks like. And that part maybe isn't so fun. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, we've talked to, we've been very fortunate on the podcast, talked to guys uh, from a, a number of different leagues, but a lot of guys in the NFL and, you know, I, my understanding, at least with Major League Baseball, is much of the contract or the, the contracts can be guaranteed. Where in the NFL, you yep. talk about cutthroat, man, that's a tough way to make a living in, in an environment where essentially you're getting run over by a truck every other play. Um, it's the business side of what you guys do is is not an easy thing to fathom. I mean, you know, there are guys with stresses in their jobs and careers day to day for sure. But like you said, it's not always what, what Alec talks about on the podcast is cheaper, younger, faster, right? Like the GM of the, the team is always chasing, at least in the NFL, cheaper, younger, faster. And baseball can't be too much different. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately in baseball, I tell people all the time, like, I'm so thankful. We have an incredible players union in Major League Baseball and the guys that came before us paved the way for guys that are playing in the era I played in, the guys that are playing now to have those guaranteed contracts. So like you mentioned, Chris, in, in baseball, I mean, essentially every contract is essentially fully guaranteed if it's a major league deal. So the minute you sign on that dotted line, you're getting the money, which as a professional athlete is oftentimes a huge sense of relief because oftentimes you're getting paid for what you've been doing the past decade, right? So whether that's sure. in high school or in college, you've been working your way up and then you sign your draft contract, like you're getting paid for future ability, but also like what you've been doing in the past. And, I think it's one of the biggest things that I see, you know, as I look at even on the financial side for us, as we work with professional athletes, the difference between guys in the NBA versus guys in the NHL, guys in the NFL, guys in Major League Baseball, and then like how that flows to, you know, the things that they should be thinking about in terms of managing their risk. You know, in the NFL, a lot of these contracts aren't guaranteed, right? What you see on ESPN oftentimes is not actually getting paid out. So how can guys, you know, start to manage their risk? Whereas in baseball, like I said, you get these fully guaranteed deals. A guy signs a hundred million dollar deal. Like he's getting that hundred million dollar deal as long as he just continues to show up. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. It, and, and how, how did that translate or I guess permeate into your career? Like Jacob, you, you mentioned it, you, you, you didn't have that straight line trajectory of, Hey, I'm going to be the next Justin Verlander. You kind of bounced around a little bit across your yeah. career. You came out as a really highly touted first round draft pick in your mind's eye. You had this kind of, I guess, irrational sense of confidence of who you were going to be. When did that start to shift for you where you were starting to think, oh, I'm not going to be J Justin Verlander, right? I mean, mm, how, how did yeah. that, was, was there a moment for you? Yeah, I think I posted about this on Twitter. Quick thing on all of Jacob's social media. If you're not following him on LinkedIn, Twitter, I don't, I haven't seen your stuff as much on Instagram, Jacob, but it's really good. I, I really enjoy it. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. 
for me, I mean, it happened so fast, right? It, it was really years in the making. But for me, it felt like I woke up one day and I was like, man, this is not how I thought it was going to go. So to give you know listeners a little bit of background, I signed it as an 18-year-old. I was a top 10 prospect in all of baseball. I got to the big leagues at 20. But the reality was by 25, I was essentially hanging on. I was essentially like, I don't know if I'm going to be in the big leagues tomorrow. I could get sent to AAA. In baseball, you could get what's called designated for assignment, which essentially means you get taken off the 40-man roster, which is not good. Um, and it really happened what felt like overnight. You know, I mean, it was a five-year time period there. But I think that one of the biggest lessons it, it taught me, and I think this is a lesson that anybody should should take away, is you know the, some of the best performers that I've seen in my life, whether it's business or sports or really anything, they have this ability to not only celebrate the wins, right? Like it's hard whenever you get those wins in your life, but they also have this almost this irrational fear that it could all be taken away from them tomorrow. So they're able to keep their foot on the gas all the time. I think Mark Cuban has this quote that he wants people in business to work like somebody's working 24 hours to take everything away from you. And that's, I think, what sports taught me. Um, For better or worse, like it's really shaped the way that I've you know, built my second half of my career. In what way? Like, what were some of those those habit stacks that that you were putting together, either maybe during your playing career, or that second half, or as you transitioned into you know the next phase, which is you know on the financial the financial wealth management side of things. Well, when I when I was playing, I used to think that time was the cure all for everything. So I got to the big league super fast, maybe had some struggles, but I thought, you know, I'm, I see these guys that really develop in year two and three. So time will allow me to develop. And look, I was putting in the work. I wasn't sitting around doing nothing, but I, I would say my sense of urgency, that dial, I feel like could have been turned up a little bit higher. And when I think about what I do now and I think about the lessons I learned then, I mean, my di- my urgency dial is always essentially at a 10 when it comes to what we're doing in our business. I'm always trying to think about what can we be doing better for clients? What can we be doing better as a business? Who are new people that we could potentially bring on that are going to be A players for us in the future? And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that like I had this career that at 20, I was like, I'm be the next Justin Verlander. And by 25, I was hanging on and it felt like it went like that. And it's just, it's become just kind of part, part of who I am. I think, you know, professional sports has taught me an incredible amount of life lessons that I think a lot of people don't get until they're later on in life. The way that I describe professional sports in general is like, if you play for 10 years, you're essentially getting life lessons that generally most people don't get for 30 or 40 years. And if you can condense those down and take the ones that are really valuable to you, they can make a huge impact on whatever your second act is post sports. Yeah, I, th- I think the the one that always stands out to me, and, and you just kind of hit the nail on the head, or two, I guess, is one, the accountability and performance, right? I mean, not everybody has those lessons coming out of school in, into the career, you know, uh, or into a career path. And then the, the urgency, but I, I almost think of that urgency as like a consistency. You're, you're waking up every day, moving the ball forward. And, you know, um, it, it can be just a little bit, but everything is essentially compounded efforts over time, right? And you know this from the investing side of things, the most important tool in investing is time, right? Like compounding interest is it, right? Just hit singles and doubles for 30 years and it's kind of be okay. Don't lose principle, yep. right? I mean, that's that's always the goal of it. And I think that's what people lose and athletes have is 
you know, when you got drafted in 2009, that was the previous 15 years of work, right? And and you did a little bit every day and that stacked. And that's why you got drafted top, you know, as a top 20 draft pick. And I think as we kind of go into the world as, as in your, our careers, that's something that people lose is like, dude, it's a little bit every day and 20 years from now, you'll see the benefits of it. I think that's one of those things that sport teaches, regardless of what level you're at. Yeah, the, the analogy that I like to use is it's like hitting the pinata. When somebody's hitting a pinata, they don't know which swing is going to break the pinata. And oftentimes they might be on swing five or six, and it might not be till swing 20 that it breaks the pinata, but it's showing up every single day and continuing to do that little thing, even when you're not seeing the immediate results of it. Right. This is a show that I'm sure a lot of investors listen to. And like we talk about delayed gratification, the idea that I'm going to do something today that is not going to give me any gratification today, but maybe in five, 10, 15 years, it's going to be really successful. That's the way I think about everything that we do. And I think, you know, that mindset combined with the sense of urgency can create incredible results because you're thinking about stuff on a really long-term time horizon. So you're willing to do stuff that other people aren't willing to do. But then Mm -hmm. when you combine that with a sense of urgency to show up every single day and actually get better and not say that the time is going to be the biggest factor in this, saying that my urgency multiplied by the time is going to create the results. Uh, I mean, you can see incredible benefits from that. Yeah. I'm reading a book right now called uh, Rebellious CEO. You ever read that? I have not. So Ralph Nader, uh, my dad actually sent me the book, but he profiles 12 CEOs that he believes have sort of redefined the role in a variety of different industries. And, and last night I was reading before bed and um, the guy who started Patagonia, and I'm going to butcher his name. I think it's Jan Shornar. Oh, he's got, a, but, he's got a great story. Yeah, his story is incredible. But one of the things that he built into the Patagonia mission was make decisions today like Patagonia is going to exist for the next 100 years, right? And so all of those fundamental decisions on how they built the business. And I think how his employees conduct themselves have this filter of, but how is that going to look for us in 20 years? And I think that that horizon changes, you know, your perspective of how you make decisions. And it's so easy to get in the decision where you're just looking at what's right in front of you versus, you know, the 20 years. So I love, I love that thought process of, you know, kind of the urgency and compounding. I'll, I'll tell one more quick story, Jake, because you'll like it is I've a buddy whose kid is a really was a really good soccer player still is. Um, but as a child, he was probably six or seven. I asked how his soccer game went that weekend. And his dad was like, great, he scored like eight goals. I was like, what do you mean he scored eight goals? This is soccer. Like, they, they don't score any goals. He's like, well, my kid's really good. He's like, here's what we do. Every night, I spend another 10 minutes of dribbling. He's like, so at the end of the week, we only do it five nights a week. We don't do it on the weekend. He's like, so at the end of the week, my kid's got 50 minutes more of dribbling than every other kid on his team. He's like, and at the end of the year, you multiply that by 52 weeks, he's got 2,500 ish more minutes of dribbling than every kid on his team he's like and eventually that's going to compound to incredible talent and that kid ended up playing d1 soccer and you know like you said it's just you just stack you're just stacking on top of it yeah people people completely underestimate what you can do just by doing little things over and over again and i think that's an incredible example when you think about sports even professional sports, people look at what they do, what an athlete does when they show up on the game on a random Wednesday. 
But what they don't see is all the tedious work that they did to make that one great play that you saw, to make that one pitch when the bases were loaded, to you know connect for the home run that's a walk-off home run. They don't see all the extra reps that went into them having the opportunity to potentially perform at that level. Yeah, and you get, like Eminem said, you get you get one shot <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. J- Jacob, what... What were so talk to me about your foundational of, of uh, financial education coming into the league as, as a you know how was money discussed around the kitchen table when you guys had dinner with your family like what 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 was that in your household growing up? Yeah, I was really fortunate. My dad owned a small business. My mom had an accounting background, so numbers and finances and money were somewhat discussed. And I'll. I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned from my parents was you know, my parents lived, we lived a good lifestyle, but we lived vastly below our means. But I'll never forget, and I think it was 2007, 2008, when the market really started to turn, we used to have a cash drawer. And this cash drawer, my mom would put money in the drawer that was essentially for like extracurricular spending. So my dad always loved to take us out to dinner, but my mom was always like saying, like, you know, we can only spend this much. So what she did was she would put cash in this drawer on Monday. And if it was gone by Sunday, and my dad went to go out to dinner on Sunday, it was like, hey, there's no more cash in the drawer. I can remember asking them, like, do, do we not have any money? And they're like, no, we, we're fine. But like, you know, this is how essentially like how we're budgeting for right now. Like, you know, the world is kind of in this state of flux. Like, we don't know what's going to happen. So I had some really good, really good upbringing, really good lessons from them. And then when I, when I first signed... Essentially, I just thought, I just don't want to be on 30 for 30 broke. So what can I do to not be on that? And I think athletes go one of two ways. They either spend everything or they spend nothing. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, getting good advice helps you spend somewhere in the middle. I went the other way where I essentially just didn't spend anything, which, you know, looking back, reflecting on it, I joke with people. I'm like, I'm the best market timer of all time. I signed in 2009, <laughs> started investing right away. So that part was great. But the reality is um, money's a tool, right? And if we worked really hard for it, like we should be rewarding ourselves. We should be spending on things that bring us joy in our lives. Yeah. If, if For anybody listening or you, Jake, if you hadn't read Die With Zero, it's an incredible thesis on the utility of money. But when you're 22, you're not thinking about what's going to happen when you die, at least most people. So so when you came out, that immediate to investing, I mean, you say you spend nothing. Did you have an advisor who was saying, hey, put your checks here. We're going to take care of them for you. Yeah. Essentially what I did was I actually just set up like direct deposit to my brokerage account. And I would just get a little bit of money from my brokerage account every month that I could spend, which looking back on it, you know, in the way that we do it with our athletes now is like, I always separate out the brokerage account and their cash account because, you know, the easy example I give is if a guy's, you know, budgeting to spend 5000 bucks a month and he's got a million dollars sitting in a brokerage account and he spends $7,000 that month, he's not really going to feel it. But sure. if he has $15,000 or three months of living expenses in his cash account and he spends 7000 bucks that month, he's going to feel it when he looks at that bank account. So, you know, I had some people around me. I don't know if I had the best people around me right at the beginning, but I think it's all a learning process. Yeah, for sure. What, what were some of those lessons? Like as you matured into your... I guess, investment maturity was the initial thought. When you say brokerage account, I mean, are you, is somebody placing equities for you? Are you just investing like 
index fund type of strategies? I mean, at that point, I assume you kind of hands off and, hey, somebody else is moving the money around, or maybe you were. Yeah, no, I, I had a team around me that was helping me with it. And, you know, I would say on really simple terms, we had a pretty diversified portfolio. I think some of the lessons I learned was one, how important the planning side is. The group that I originally was using was more investment focused and like the investments are really important. But the reality is, especially as an athlete, you know, one of the things that we focus on in our business a ton is tax planning. You know, taxes are these athletes' biggest lifetime expense. And there's so much that you can do when you're making the money initially to make sure that you're doing everything in your power to keep as much in your pocket as possible. And the second thing I would say is, I realized that finding specialized advice gives you a lot better results. One of the one of my biggest gripes with the wealth management industry as a whole is a lot of times it's very general advice. You know, sure. if you think about what advisors do, they say if you have a certain amount of money, you'd be a good client. And essentially what they're saying is if you can pay me enough money, I'll take you on as a client. But the reality is, is that going to give you the best advice? If you're a retiree versus a professional athlete versus a key executive, we all have different complexities. We all have different nuances in terms of what's going on. And making sure that you're getting specialized advice is something that I <clears throat> I learned the hard way. What wait, you can't you can't just leave us on the cliffhanger with that. What's what was the hard way? That was like a good think, tease. If we were going into a commercial, we would I say think, you know well look when when I think about specialized advice, I'll give I'll give some specific examples to baseball. You know, when you first get called up to Major League Baseball. In the minor leagues, there's no 401k. That's hopefully changing with the new collective bargaining agreement. But nobody was giving me any guidance on the fact that like, when I got called up to the big leagues, oh, now all of a sudden I get to contribute to a 401k that's through Major League Baseball. In addition to that, as long as I sign up for it, right, and I do things the right way, the team's also going to contribute after-tax dollars to it. So I didn't even know any of that, right? My advisor didn't know any of that. Mm-hmm. When I think about my wife and I were very charitably inclined, I made a post today about donor-advised funds. You know, donor advised funds is a tool that, especially when you're in a really high income tax bracket for a given year, can be really advantageous for giving away money. Essentially, it allows you to give more money to your favorite charity and less money to the IRS. A great tool for somebody that's charitably inclined and making a lot of money. And, you know, my advisor never brought that up to me. You know, when I got done playing with Major League Baseball, if you have more than four years of service time, you can stay on their healthcare plan. But if you stay on their healthcare plan, they have three different options. They have, you know, basically a an active plan, a buy down plan, and then a, a essentially a very high cost plan. I didn't have any of the nuances to understand what that plans those plans were. And the group that I was working with, they didn't work with professional baseball players, so they didn't even know that that was an option. So it's it's things like that that over time, you know, we we talked about compounding earlier in this conversation, start to really make a difference. Yeah, I think that's I, what, what you just said is hard too because you don't know yet what you don't know. Right? I mean, at, at 25, 26, 27, you're just starting to get your feet under you. And, and like you said, if you don't have the advisor or somebody holding your hand through that, and, and to your point and what you guys do now with the specialization specifically for, prof- for professional athletes, if somebody doesn't have that background, like if you came to me and said, Chris, what should I do? I don't know. I'd tell you what I do, but I wasn't a professional athlete. I mean, that's that's the hard part about it. In in your world today, what what are the things like I guess foundationally that you wish, you know, if Jacob Turner of today could go back and advise Jacob Turner of 25, like what are some of the one, you know, the foundational steps other than spend money less money than you make? What are some of the foundational mm-hmm. steps you'd put in place for yourself? The the biggest thing that I 
I wish I would have seen. And what we do for guys now is when they're initially getting money, I will map out if we stick to the whatever plan we put in place in terms of spending versus saving, and we can earn a really solid rate of return over a really long period of time, here's what this money looks like for you. Okay. What, what do and you in, use in as addition, that, Jacob? What's, what's your number? What's the assumption you guys say when you, you talk about a, a rate of return? Yeah, I mean, one, hashtag this is not financial advice. <laughs> Compliance won't let me say that. And two, you know, I'm going to give you the best worst answer I have, Chris. It depends, right? The reality is, Returns vastly differ based on how much risk a client is willing to take and how sure. much risk they need to take. So, you know, they can range all the way across the board. What I think is more important is for, for clients to understand what is a potential distribution rate from their nest egg, right? If they have a million bucks, how much could they potentially spend off that? And what is potentially either the gap that they have, or maybe they don't have any gap between what that distribution rate could be in, in post-career and what they're spending. Because the ultimate goal is, if you get done with your baseball career, you get done with your football career, and you have enough saved that it matches whatever your lifestyle is over here, you have the ultimate flexibility. You can go into whatever you want with your next career, right? You can take your time. You can figure out what that's going to be. You can do something that's around your passion. You could go start a business because you have essentially an unlimited financial runway. How many guys that you work with know that burn rate? So I would consider burn rate, you're talking about lifestyle expense, but ostensibly how much it costs them to live on a monthly basis. How many guys know? I mean, the guys that work with us know what they're spending, Um, but (laughs) I'll say I'll speak, I'll speak for the guys that, that have come in that we've talked to. I mean, the reality is most people don't because, you know, they've never been tracking it and you don't need to be tracking it down to every single last hour that goes out for the Starbucks coffee you bought for your wife. But it is really important to understand, hey, what are my what are my fixed costs? Okay, what are the things that I can't really tweak these, right? And the biggest fixed cost that essentially everybody has is their living expenses. If you buy a house and I say, your house costs too much money, we need to get rid of it. We can't just flip the switch off, walk out the door, collect the check and move on to the next thing. There's going to be big costs involved with potentially selling it, getting it on the market. It's going to take time. That's a fixed cost, right? The cost that it, it incurs every single month for you to live there is is key. And I think the biggest thing is just understanding, even if it's just a ballpark, you know, am I spending ten thousand a month? Am I spending fifteen thousand a month? Am I spending thirty thousand a month? What I've seen time and time again is guys vastly underestimate what they're spending. They think they're spending fifteen and turns out they're spending thirty. Or they think they're spending twenty and they're saying, but you know, those expenses I have for my kids school, those don't count for that, right? And it's really important to understand that like, hey, every dollar that's going out, that counts. Do, do you recommend a tool like personally, like I use Quicken and, you know, every mm. Sunday I go back through and Quicken and hey, this is what I spent this week. And it's it's fascinating. I think you probably do it inherently, but it's fascinating to go back and just look at what you've spent money on. And, and Quicken does a nice job of creating um, some reporting and graphical representations of that. But is there a tool that you recommend for guys to start, um, you know, implementing that to to do that tracking? Yeah, I'll speak. I mean, personally, I use a tool called Monarch Money, which has been awesome. I used to use a a tool called Mint, which got bought by somebody here recently and switched to Monarch Money. Monarch's been great. It's very similar to like Quicken or QuickBooks. 
a lot of times for our clients, especially at the beginning, we're trying to get a, a big ballpark on what they're doing. And I mentioned earlier, always making sure that we have separation between the brokerage account and what we call the cash account. And then what we can do is we can go in that cash account and be able to see, okay, here's kind of what the expenses look like from a big picture standpoint. And if we were shooting for, you know, three to 4,000 bucks a month when they first signed that they're spending and they're spending six, we can then drill down and say, hey, what is the extra $3,000 a month coming out for? You know, but if we're around that ballpark, you know, give or take a couple hundred bucks, then, you know, I, it, I don't see the need to make sure that that we're drilling down to every last dollar. But personally, I use Monarch. We also have a tool in our business, um, a financial planning tool called Right Capital that we help that we use to help clients. What, Jake, we didn't really get to this, but what was the transition from the end of baseball to financial advising like cap or wealth management? What physically happened? And, and how did that transition take place for you? Yeah, I've always loved personal finance. So you know, my mom had the accounting background. When I first signed, I probably read more personal finance books than anybody. I mean, I was reading books on investing when I was playing just to better understand what was I investing in. It led me to essentially ask every advisor that I had, I would just pepper them with a million questions about why I was doing what I was doing and what they would do with their own money and all these things. And I knew when I got done, I wanted to do something to educate guys around money, around personal finance. I wasn't sure... I wanted to become a financial advisor. I think financial advisors have a very negative connotation for good reason. And frankly, I wasn't always the biggest fan of financial advisors. So um, I thought, what better way for me to help than to become a financial advisor? And um, you know, that journey was interesting because what I did, Chris, was I essentially went around and I interviewed everybody that was quote unquote successful that was take my call or go to lunch with me. That was around money and finance, you know, from real estate to private equity to investment banking to wealth management to family offices to better understand, okay, out of all these kind of different spectrums that it comes to finance, what area do I like the most? And what area do I want to mesh a potential work-life balance in the future? So originally I thought I wanted to go into investment banking and then realized, you know, these hours are crazy. And Financially, I wasn't in a position where I needed to do that. So I thought, okay, that's probably out. And ultimately, I ended up working for a company that was here in St. Louis. That's a multifamily office. I worked there for six months. And essentially, my pitch to the CEO was, you don't really need to pay me. I just want to come in and understand the ins and outs of this business. I think this is what I want to do long term. I think you guys have a great business. You guys have a great company. I would love to learn the insides of this business from you guys. And we can kind of reconvene in six months and see if this fits long-term. What do you say? He took me up on it. Turns out um, finding good employees that'll work for free is a great deal. <laughs> I've So I have two boys, Jacob, 18 and 22. And I've always said, look, just go offer my 22 year old, especially is, you know, kind of he's, he's starting his career is find the guy or gal that you're, you want to be at least for right now. Right. And that, and that changes. I think, you know, this too. I mean, you're still young, but you know, 30-year-old Jacob's going to think different than 40-year-old Jacob and 50-year-old Jacob. And my pitch has always been just go offer time. Like if you come to me and say, hey, Chris, we, we do private equity real estate uh, specifically in self-storage, Jacob. And if you say, hey, I want to learn the self-storage business, I'll come work you 20 hours a week for free. What am I going to say? Yep. No. <laughs> and yeah. I, I think you guys as professional athletes have access, right? Everybody wants to talk to you, especially when you're playing, right? I mean, if if you were in Detroit your first few years in, a highly touted draft pick, and you pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm Jacob Turner. I'm the Detroit Tigers first round draft pick. I'd love to come meet with you. They're going to be like, great. 
Come on. Oh, 100%, so, man. If I could go back and do it all over again, the, the Rolodex I would have would be even better. Yeah, I think the thing that we've learned too in the podcast and the interviewing is it you have to be intentional in that ask, right? What can you bring to them while you are still relevant in, in the sports world? And people are going to take you up on it. They're going to they're let you in. They want to help. Yeah, the, the thing I would add too to that is I think one trap that, athletes particularly can fall into is they think that because I was successful at something, somebody else is just going to want to give me a job, right? I won a world series or whatever it may be. And they're like, they're going to want me on the team. But what they want is they want value, right? If they're running a business, they want to know like, okay, I understand that you were good at that. And maybe you have some connections that could benefit us, but like, tell me why, right? Even if I'm going to come work for free, you know, I think about some of the people that we have brought on as 1099s in our business. And one of the guys uh, helps us with some of our video content. And one of the things that he did was not only did it reach out, but he was like, I'll essentially work for free for the first two weeks. I'll cut all the videos. I'll show you what I can do. And Love if it. we both agree after two weeks that I'm good enough at this, then you'll hire me. How about that? And I was like, I mean, that's a an incredible offer, right? I'll take two weeks of free videos. And if if you're not good, like, hey, we just agreed that like you had to be good for this to work. Yeah, I got I got a Google Drive full of edited videos that, that I'm taking with me. Yep. So what did, how did that transition from that role at the multifamily office to Moment Wealth where you guys are now and, and as a co-founder? Yeah, so I worked there for six months, realized that I love the inside of the business. I love the relationships. I love the people side. I love helping to educate people. I enjoy sharing my own personal experiences. I think I take a very unique approach as an advisor. Oftentimes with clients that we work with, I share exactly what I'm doing. The way I describe it is like they're essentially getting financially naked in front of us. And if I'm not or our advisors aren't willing to get financially naked in front of them, then like, how are we having a, a actual dialogue? What I realized though was one, I, I'm i not the best employee. Um, I'm very entrepreneurial. <laughs> and I didn't really realize that at the very beginning. But I, I definitely realized that going through the six month process of working there. And two, I really felt like I wanted to help a specific group of people. Not not only I felt like my skill set was meant to help that group of people, but when I think about personal finance, Chris, I think about it as everything is so inherently personal, right? Like we can make a decision on a spreadsheet or a Google Doc, but the reality is that decision, just because the X's and O's match up, doesn't mean that it's right for you in your life. Because the way that you think about money, how money shaped you, your viewpoints on it are going to be different than my viewpoints on it. I wanted to make sure that I worked with a group of people that I felt like I had walked in their shoes. So when they came to me and they said, you know, here's what I'm thinking, even if it doesn't match on that spreadsheet, I could say, you know what, I, I understand where you're coming from. And I, I think that could make sense to potentially explore. And how is that translated to what or maybe a, a good overview of what Moment Wealth is? I mean, obviously, you guys are working with professional athletes. Yeah. At what level? Just wealth management? Sounds like you're doing some tax planning as well. Yeah. So we really work as a essentially a virtual family office for professional athletes and high growth entrepreneurs. So we're covering everything from their cash flow planning, both personally in the business to tax planning, to their estate planning, making sure that we're getting that implemented to risk management strategies from life insurance to property and casualty insurance, building out the investment portfolio. And then oftentimes for a lot of the athletes we work with, we help them build out the team of A players around them. So that might be their CPA, their estate planning attorney, um, their insurance agent. And then we're coordinating with that entire team. And oftentimes for a lot of the entrepreneurs we work with, they're really hitting a different level in their business. And they're saying, 
you know, the CPA that I had when I first started 10 years ago is a great guy, but I might have outgrown him. Do you have other people that we should potentially interview and talk to? Yeah. For those of you guys not familiar with virtual family office, think of it as they're the quarterback, right? I mean, you guys are building the foundation for all things finance, tax planning, estate planning, and everything runs back to a singular entity or team so that, you know, ostensibly you guys can um, have a picture of or have a full picture of that athlete or that person's um, particular financial situation. I, I love yeah, that model. I think it's a great, yeah, great way to explain it. The, the reason why I would say we basically built the model based on what my experiences were as a client and what I felt like was valuable. So when I was sitting on the other side of the table as a client, there were certain things on the investment side that I thought were valuable, but I also had a really good understanding of what I wanted to do. So a lot of times those conversations were very mutual. One of the things I did think was extremely valuable was making sure that I had one point of contact as the complexity started to grow in my life. My wife's super sharp with money, but the reality is like she's not the day-to-day, she's not in the weeds of the money like I am. And if something ever happened to me, I wanted to make sure that we had one point of contact that was like, hey, I know where the trust is. I know what it says. We can get it executed. I know what the insurance documents say. I know where the investments are. I know what the strategy is. Where it's all housed in one place that somebody can say, like, the train stays on the proverbial tracks. Yeah, so important. And, and not just for professional athletes, right? I mean, you know, a guy asked me a question once that really stuck with me was, does your wife know your password manager password? He's like, and if yeah. she doesn't, it's because you don't think you're ever going to die. <laughs> and I yeah. was like, hmm, good, good one, right? Like that, that's one of those things where you're like, yeah, what, what does she need to know all this stuff for? So I think that the kind of long-term planning, and it's hard to do when you're, I mean, Jacob, you're still young, 32, right? I'm 43, I'm a little bit older, but I, I still think I'm relatively invincible. Maybe not as invincible as I thought I was when I was 30, but. It, it's so important to have that long-term plan. I'm going to land the plane with two questions. Number one, you have Shoe Dog on the uh, on the shelf behind you, which is one of yeah. my favorite entrepreneurial books. And I'll, I'll tell you, after you tell me, I'll tell you what the lesson was I took out of that. But you, you put it on the shelf. You got a lot of books back there. Why did you highlight yeah. Shoe Dog? Shoot. You know what's incredible about Shoe Dog? So for people that don't know, Shoe Dog's the story of Phil Knight starting Nike and, and growing it. But... The, my, one of my biggest takeaways from Shoe Dog was they had essentially built a really solid business and then essentially kept going all in to continue to grow it. And I, I don't know how many years they were in, a decade into building this business. And essentially, like if they didn't get this meeting with an overseas supplier, they were going out, right? And he just flies there, no meeting scheduled, just like, I'm going to go, like, I got to go all in. And I think that the incredible lesson there is. In life, oftentimes, we want one foot on the cliff and one foot off the cliff. But to see outlier success like Nike has had, sometimes you just got to go all in. It's a good lesson, Jacob. Burn the boats, right? If you're going to take the island, you got to burn the boats. The one that stood out for me in that book, it's eerily similar to what you just said. But what struck me was, and I don't know if you remember in the book, but there's the, the chapter ends with they take Nike public and at the bottom, Phil Knight says, and I was worth $180 million, something like that. It, it ends similar to that. And this was like in the mid 80s, they had Jordan sign like Nike was a thing at this point, right? This wasn't like the beginning of Nike. Um, but what was so striking to me about it was the week before they almost didn't make payroll. Like they were so bootstrapped and to your point, pushing um, pushing that forward. It was crazy to me that Nike in the 80s, right? Jordan, like that era of Nike was still 
right on the precipice of utter destruction, right? I mean, you don't make payroll. Yeah. I don't say it's over, but it's pretty over. And and then, you know, they took the company public and now Nike is who Nike is. But that was always the thing to me is you you don't understand the the angst and the the challenges with growing a business. Like, you know, you think Nike, you're like, ah, they, they must have been crushing it forever. I mean, you know, Phil Knight was was worrying about where they're going to be able to pay their secretary that week, which to me is always crazy. Yeah. So Brett book. Bishort, who's a, an incredible entrepreneur, has this line that all small businesses are loosely functioning disasters. And I think that's true <laughs> not only for small businesses, but also for large businesses, because people think that everybody's got it figured out, but it's just a bunch of humans trying to make the next best move. Jacob, one, I, he's probably going to be pissed that I tell this story, but I have a buddy who worked for Booz Hamilton as a consultant for many years, traveled all over the world, consulted with some of the largest businesses that you and I know. This particular company, and the name will remain nameless, did about a half a billion dollars in revenue a year. Half a billion. You know why they brought his company in from a consulting group perspective? All of their financials were done in Excel. The entire company globally a half a billion dollar organization. He said that once a month, they would send this spreadsheet around to all the global heads of the business and everybody would fill out their section. And in China, the spreadsheet was so big and they had bandwidth restrictions that they couldn't email the spreadsheet. So they would download it onto a thumb drive and then FedEx it back to the, the oh well, my I'm not going to say where the corporate office was. This was yeah. a publicly traded company doing a half a billion a year. And I was like, what? If only the that's investors crazy. knew. It doesn't, that doesn't surprise me. That's crazy. Well, all right. Last question. I appreciate you being so gracious with your time. So, so put yourself in 21-year-old you shoes and 32-year-old you comes, right? You're 32? Yep. 32-year-old you sees you. You guys go and have dinner. What, what are the things you're telling you? I just say, enjoy the journey so many people get so caught up in like what they think the destination is going to be, you know, as an athlete, it's getting to the highest level or getting to the next level, you know, you go from high school to college to professional to hopefully the highest level of professional. And then you get there and you realize I'm still living the same life. I'm still the same person. And look, it's incredible, but oftentimes we don't spend time reflecting on the journey because the stories that you tell when it's all over are oftentimes the stories that at the times when you were going through them felt like the biggest struggles. And you were like, why am I going through this? But those are the stories you tell because those are the lessons that you learned along the way. And if I could go back and do it all over again, I would have enjoyed the journey more. And that's one thing that I've tried to do building our business. You know, we're three years into this. Lord willing, we'll be doing this for the next 30 years. And I'm very cognizant that, you know, look, every day isn't perfect. But in 30 years, I hope I can look back and say, man, I can remember back in 2024 when this thing happened. And, you know, it was, I thought it was a really big deal then. But now look where we're at. You almost missed payroll. That's going to be your story. <laughs> yeah. I almost pissed, missed payroll that year. And then I was worth 180 million bucks. Yep, Jacob Turner, crazy. true pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time with us on Beyond the Game. Where can people find you? I know I mentioned your social media is great. Um, list a few of those handles off. We'll make sure that that gets put in the show notes as well. Yeah, I post on uh, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter, all under the Jacob Turner. I think Instagram has maybe an underscore with it. And then you can find our company, Moment Private Wealth, at momentprivatewealth.com. Awesome. Jacob, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Chris. 
Thank you for joining us on Beyond the Game. Please like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms. It really helps others find the show. And a special shout out to Open Heart Media who helps with the production. Check them out at openheartmediaco.com.